here again and this is Jane and uh, welcome to the next episode of Copyright and Warfall. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay Jane would you like to introduce who we are with today? Yes I would do yes. Well I'm very very excited as we say we're always excited when we're we talking are, about copyright absolutely. but we're particularly yeah, yeah. excited today we're at the University of Cambridge and we have Professor Lionel Bentley with us yes. and uh, he's going to have a bit of a copyright waffle with us. I am. Hello yes. Lionel. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, so uh, what we generally tend to do is we want to start asking people how they got involved mm. in copyright. So you're quite heavily involved in copyright, I, I, I guess you would say. But how did that start? Yeah, so it's, it's quite a boring story, unfortunately. I um, went, was at the Law Commission doing property law. Okay. And then I went to teach at the University of Kiel. And I, I was very interested in property as a kind of concept. I was interested in... Uh, the philosophical justifications for private property rights. So this mm. is the mid-80s where we could still imagine, uh, uh, you know, worlds where we didn't have private property rights. Okay. Um, and I was interested in the notion of property more broadly than just physical property, land, etc. Mm. And so I wondered what this newfangled thing, intellectual property, was. Yeah. Mm. And my, I, I mentioned it to my head of department that I was thinking of doing some research on concepts of property. And she said, oh, well, the best way to find out what it is is to teach it. Okay. So I started teaching intellectual property. And to do that, I had to find out what it was. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And somebody at the time suggested to me that I write about sampling, which is something we might come back to later okay. on. Right. Yeah. Um, and do you, I can't anybody remember the theme from S Express and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yaz and the plastic population oh, and yeah. the yeah. only way is up. Yeah. And this sort of thing. These were the kind of... 1988. 1988. Yeah, yeah exactly. So these yeah. were the, the hits around at the time. And yeah. I'd been into music, but not that kind of music. I was into sort of indie stuff. Okay. Mm. And and um, so, you know, but the, but the NME was talking about sampling. And mm. so my first task was to write about sampling. That was how I got to learn about copyright, really. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's music. So, yeah. it's, it's music. Music indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So have you ever done any sampling? Have you ever done any kind of music production? Or are you just looking at the uh, kind of legal side uh, of things? <laughs> uh, you, well, I, a few years before that, I... Yeah. Would, I did some stuff in uh, with some friends, but not sampling. No, okay. and uh, it wasn't the, it wasn't the legality that put you off, though. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, and and in fact, I argued that uh, the uh, you know that that if copyright prevented sampling, uh, and yes. then it was not getting the balance right between incentives and reuse of material. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. So, because so, I. I I remember from my time working at PRS that we were, you know, this is when I got my first job <clears throat> related to copyright, and this was all the registrations of the copyright works. And then what you have is, you know, the registration comes in and then something's a hit. And then, of course, everybody's claiming in and then the whole mm. thing gets frozen and, you know, until you kind of have the argument about whether or not, you know, that person is point, you know, 1.6% of... Yeah. Of the, of the total. So those sorts of bits about um, the music industry's resolu dispute resolution mm. mechanisms, the things yeah. that people haven't really uh, written about or academics haven't really written about and investigated, I think there's yeah. a lot that could be done that's mm. in that area that would be yeah. fascinating if you could yeah. get it. 
access to it. Yes, absolutely, because that's the thing. Yeah, it's it's all closed, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Um, okay, brilliant. So that was how you kind of got into it through music, and then you went on from there. And so, what kind what was the the gap from 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 just starting to get into it to the position you're in now, where mm. you're you know kind of one of the leading IP people, certainly in in the UK. Yeah. So I went. Uh, I was at Kiel for three years. Mm. And I published some stuff on sampling. And then I went to uh, New York to start a JSD, which is a PhD in law, Doctor of Juridical Science at Columbia University. And I never finished this, so um, I'm a very good example to all research students out there of, okay. of, of, a, of a complete failure. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, I'm the convener of our research training program, which is always kind of uh, funny uh, since, you know, I, I never succeeded in, in finishing mine. Anyway, so I studied under Jane Ginsberg there mm. and started a project on the history of artistic copyright. Yeah. Um, and in particular, copyright in paintings, which was first recognised in statute in 1862. Mm-hmm. And then I came back to the UK and I met a guy called Brad Sherman, who was at the LSE. Yeah. And Brad and I started working together on the history of IP. And we would go to the National Archive and investigate things that really many people, very few people might have access previously. Yeah. And at the end of the 90s, we published a book called The Making of Modern Intellectual Property Law, which um, uh, I think you know, was a very significant step in, in me climbing up the greasy pole. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'd started out being very interested in the history of designs. It was going to be a book really about the history of design law. But we found ourselves caught up in the late 18th century debates over um, common law copyright. Yeah. And so it ended in as a book about really the genealogy of intangible property mm. ideas and then how the different categories of intellectual property, copyright, patents, designs and trademarks came to be. Yeah. So before you did that work, was that that hadn't really been established or clearly defined in that way? Is yeah, that I think no, no, there were some histories of each area, histories of patents, some really good stuff by economic historians like Harold Dutton and then Christine McLeod. Yeah. And there was some very good work already being done. The, Historically, there'd been good work done um, by librarians and bibliographers and those sorts of people mm-hmm. on the history of copyright. But around about uh, the early 90s, Mark Rose published a great book called Authors and Owners about uh, the copyright debates in the 18th century. But nobody had really brought them together with the other work and mm-hmm. the other intellectual property rights and sort of asked how did those categories that we all take for granted how did those structures that you know the first thing you learn is that a copyright is not a patent it's mm. not a trademark yeah 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 uh, when did those things become part of the the uh, yeah the, the structure of ip yeah and and what is it that you find is you still interested in that kind of from the initial thing about what is property and how does it you know philosophically is that what kind of keeps you kind of going, or is as is, is more aspects of of copyright and that's yeah. part of intellectual property kind of revealed themselves to you over the? No, I over think I think I, I I'm more interested in 
history now than the okay. than the philosophical ideas. Which, okay. I mean, one of the, the the very interesting things to me of doing the history is just how repetitive those philosophical ideas mm. are. Mm. So you see the ideas of of natural rights, of free riding, of incentives, of the need to encourage labour over and over again. So then you start to think, well, what's interesting is something else that's going on, not the arguments, some mm. things that makes the arguments work at certain times and not as others, or in certain yeah. environments and not others. And so uh, my focus shifted to much more to those kind mm. of, of questions. Um, and do you see some of the, um, the arguments that um so like as technologies were evolving as well which you know we we were just sort of talking before we were a bit recording about yeah. photocopy and the internet those kinds of things but you see that earlier on in the history as well that there's kind of panics as, as yeah you know, yeah you photography do yeah. and things like that yeah so, so all these things create their own yeah little panics and 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 people worry about how the system can survive there was a, a very nice book written by a Frenchman called Bernard Edelman about called Ownership of the Image, which was, or at least in English, Ownership of, Eng of the Image, which was about how the copyright categories were surprised by photography. Right, uh, yeah. Photography yeah. came along and suddenly sunlight, etc., was being used to create images and, and how were we to make sense of this in, yes. in the 1850s? Mm. Uh, was it nature creating images or yeah. was it was a, a human, human being in, yeah. Yeah. intervening etc yeah. yeah so um yeah and i think that's true all along there's a certain uncertainty about how to deal with sound recordings and yeah. then also films at, at a similar time mm. um and lots of it is uh is done in the language of crisis yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. you see that it's, I, I've, well. I've always thought like well, latterly, the yeah. copyright history was the the PhD I should have written. Really, yeah. <laughs> I kind of I did like history, but I, at that point I wasn't interested in copyright. You've searched my thesis looking for the word, I, I did, and it doesn't I appear. Could, I couldn't find it. No, no. so uh, it, but 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 kind of now that would yeah. be that would be what I'd do. I think. It's but Will's, I'm just also remembering a conversation we had with Will Slaughter as well, who we yeah, saw yeah. do his his work on the news, yeah. and, and we were at Copy Camp last year, and and just talking about it, it's that same thing that was happening in the mm. 19th century, but, and in fact taking snippets of news and combining them together into an aggregate product. It's always, always been part of the news yeah. industry. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it, yeah. once again, it's yeah. a battle for, you know, for eyeballs and for, for cash. Yeah. Yeah. No, Will's, I, I, I'm friends with Will, and, and I did some work on news as well. Uh, not, as right. good as, not as good as Will's work. So. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was great to meet him, actually, at the uh, conference, wasn't it, last yeah, year? Yeah, it was, it was another one where there was a good... Uh, there, there were a lot of... Uh, very good presentations, but his was very much focusing on the language that was used and the rhetoric. And I think that's an interesting area is what kind of rhetoric do mm. we use? Yeah. And, and, and you have this balance, don't you, in, in, in copyright between the very technical language that you might use to describe things. And then and, and we spoke to Eleanor about this as well, about that um, emotive language that will get headlines and will get things mm. moving yeah, and trying yeah. to find. I mean, is there a, is there a, a balance between those two uh, to be struck, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, the, the, in relation to news and the and the debates over the um, Article Eleven proposal, mm. um, 
you know, there was this journalist's headline. Um, I can't. I think it started in Germany and then circulated rounds that saying lives were at stake if the press publisher's right mm. was not granted, mm. it, and therefore uh, the newspapers sustained. But uh, you know that is the sort of rhetoric that we don't really want to see. Mm. I, I, you know, it's perfectly. Uh, I'm perfectly happy for journalists to say they support it. Mm. Uh, but the amount of money that will be raised by a press publisher's right is really trivial compared to the size of the loss of income from advertising yeah. um, that, mm. that's incurred just as a result of a shift in where the adver advertising is located. Mm. Um, I don't blame Google for running a great advertising system. Mm. Um, it's had some unfortunate knock-on consequences for mm. other people. Mm. But that's, mm. that's change. Uh, and I was just going to ask one more question. Okay, yeah. you carry on. <laughs> so um, also there's just this argument that I've seen out there that effectively is saying that lack of strong copyright laws that undermine the newspaper industry is allowing and promoting promulgation of fake news. That the fact is that you get yeah. mm. junk news because there aren't the economic models to sustain good quality journal journalism. Quality yeah. journalism. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't really get how an exclusive right to restrict the circulation of, of good news is going to help um, reduce the circulation of fake news. Mm. Mm. Uh, it strikes me that there's a, there is actually a danger there that fake news would become more. Uh, would pr proliferate more on the kinds of in the social channels mm. uh, if Twitter, etc., are going to have to pay when they use snippets of, mm -hmm. or when their users use snippets of, of uh, from newspapers. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I never got the fake news argument at no, all. No, I, I didn't either. No, no I thought I'd just no. ask. That was all. Yeah. <laughs> So can I ask you? You can ask me. <laughs> so, Lionel, what sort of things are you working on um, at the moment? So that was how you got into copyright. Yeah. But what what sort of have you got? You know, that interests you at the moment? Yeah. So I've been. Uh, I, I mean, actually, I've been doing a lot of work on trademark history recently, oh, which, okay. which is not of any interest to copyright waffleists. <laughs> so um, I won't. I won't. But but uh, alongside that, I was doing work on well, uh, you know, I was doing work on quotation. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which we were kind of referring to be mm. before, and Tanya Applin and I have a huge piece that is um, going to be published one day when it's finished, on the meaning, essentially on the meaning of quotation in Article 10 of the Berne Convention, so the main international copyright uh, convention, mm. where um, quotation is a, a mandatory exception. So mostly, uh, uh, most of the, the, there are mandatory rights that countries have to give copyright holders right. uh, in the Berne Convention, and there are some freedoms so they can have some except exceptions within say um to the reproduction right in article 9 but the quotation exception is unusual because um uh, the convention says quotation shall be allowed shall right. be permitted yeah yeah, yeah. and so uh, uh, as long as it meets certain conditions it has to be in accordance with fair practice it has to be proportional it mm. has to there has to be a, a attribution of the of the authorship yeah. um, 
And so then the question that we're trying to get at is, well, what is quotation? And, mm. and also, what is fair practice? And is mm. there an international standard of fair practice? And we've looked at the um, documents that were behind the convention. Yeah. And we can elicit from those certain of the um, ideas that underpin quotation. And one is that it is something that shouldn't be limited to text. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so it's not about just about printed text. Most no. of us, when we think about quotation, automatically we think about bits yeah. of text that yeah. are set in, have quotation marks. In fact, all the things we teach our students about, yeah. plagiarism, etc. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, but um, the the conference proceedings and the other proceedings talked about artistic and musical quotation right, right. and possible, possibly quotation in film, etc. And in the debates, uh, there were questions about whether the quotation should be limited to short quotations or whether they should be limited by particular purposes. Mm-hmm. And they decided against having right. those limitations. They wanted to put everything really in the box. Yeah. Of, you yeah. know, there were disagreements, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always unanimous. But, yeah. but uh, the conclusions were quotation should be a kind of broad concept, not limited by purpose but only really by this fair practice and proportionality requirement. And so Tanya and I ask, well, what is quotation in these other fields? What is quotation in art? What is quotation in film? What is quotation in architecture? Uh, What is quotation in music? And looking at those uh, fields and looking at the commentary so looking at what art historians, for example, talk, talk about as quotation, we see that these are very broad notions. They include transformative uses of mm. works, not just works that are used discreetly. Mm. Um, you, you see uh, works that are not attributed, that are just incorporated mm-hmm. and not seen as distinct in the work that's been used, etc. So then you can bring tho- those insights back and say, well, the legal concept of quotation can't be subject to those kind of conditions that we associate with print, like it being discreet, mm. it being distinct, mm. it being unmodified. Mm. Um, and so something then like sampling, taking a little bit of music, yeah. incorporating it in a song where it might form part of the song as much as a distinct thing that stands out from it, that suddenly seems very plausible candidate as, as, quotation. as quotation. Yeah, yeah. And the big question then is, well, what does the International Convention say about fair practice, which is a little bit uh, um, more limited from, mm. from the travaux? And can we come up with some guidance on what would be fair practice? Mm. And the important thing is, you know, this is, man- go back to this, this is mandatory. So once, once mm. we've, one, or mandatory, so once we've worked out what quotation countries must allow mm. is broad and what the standards of fair practice they must apply mm. they're not allowed to add extra conditions mm. um, so that could have a really big impact all around the world it, it, it could have and, and right now you know the court of justice is considering some of these questions about the meaning of quotation mm. in eu law mm. and you know there's a danger a real danger that some of these print and text-based uh, conditions will be uh, brought in, mm. and the Advocate General opinions, Advocate General's opinion in Hutter and Pelham shows that he's a bit, little bit susceptible to that. Mm. 
So, uh, and it might be then that the Court of Justice comes up with a version of a quotation that's actually out of line with, mm. with international law, which, mm. like, is intellectually interesting, but very, very unproductive mm. for the world of copyright. Yes. Yeah. So yes. if you, I mean, if, if you're able to shift the thinking on whether or not there is this mandatory fair use or mandatory yeah. fair practice that therefore should filter down into international laws. If you yeah. do have this conflict between international laws and, and, and the Berne Convention sitting at the international level, I mean, what actually happens in practical yeah. terms if, you know, it, 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 you're in contravention? Because it's very difficult to take action internationally yeah. based on an interpretation of the Berne Convention, isn't it? Yeah, so, so that's absolutely right. So... Yeah. Um, as you as you know, um, and most of your listeners probably know, there's on top of the Berne Convention, there's some other international agreements. Mm. The most important of which, in terms of enforcing the standards, yes. is the TRIPS Agreement, yep. because mm. it incorporates Berne um, as part of the WTO dispute mechanism. So, in principle, it's possible for a country that feels aggrieved that another country's laws are not compliant with the international standards mm -hmm. to take that country uh, to the WTO yes. and get a ruling that it is compliant or isn't compliant yeah. and then perhaps get the country to change its laws or have some other form of settlement. Those proceedings don't seem to be very easy to use if your objection is that a community in your country is not being able to access the benefits of an exception that a, that, that a country elsewhere should be giving mm. them mm. to exploit the work. So, you know, uh, you could imagine a group of people in, in the UK saying, well, the French... Uh, quotation exception is limited to short quotations currently yeah. mm. um, that shouldn't be permitted because that's in contravention of the Berne Convention but it's quite hard to see how you take that into the international enforcement mechanism because it would need to be the government that yeah, took that the government that so, would you, say, you need to, so if I was deciding that I wanted to do one of those artworks you said that use quotation in a sort of non-textual non-short way yeah. and I was concerned that the work I had created wouldn't be marketable in France. Yeah. That I could then say to the UK Intellectual Property Office, I want you to go and take action against <laughs> France at the international level of World Trade Organization. Yeah, so exactly. Level. The thing you're distributing, you want to distribute in France, you can't because it's not regarded as within the quotation defence in yes. France, and that's incompatible with. And, and Lionel and but, Tanya say that I, I should be yeah. able to, so. <laughs> and, and yeah, and what are the chances of the UK government taking that forward? That's the, the problem. Mm, yeah. I don't mm. see it as very strong. On the other hand, if the argument did get some purchase, the, uh, some of the big technology companies mm -hmm. might have an interest if, they were, if their interests were aligned with those of, of their country in general. So if, if we imagine that Google would like to take advantage of the... on behalf of its users, would like to take advantage of the quotation exception mm. and could get the US government to bring proceedings before the WTO saying, you know, our works are not being able to be accessed in all these countries mm. because they're not applying the quotation exception properly, then that might be a conceivable way. Okay. But I don't get the sense that that's, that A, 
the, the US right now is very keen on the WTO. <laughs> no. <laughs> and nor indeed is the incumbent's president seem very interested in the technology companies no, in any way. No, so, no. And nor did the US have a particularly good history of going to that WO, WTO conflict mechanism because they were found in contravention of the Berne Convention, weren't they? And they just they ignored were. it. Yeah, so they pay, they, they pay, yeah. So, so one of the things is it's a dispute resolution system. So at the end, uh, if you don't want to comply with the ruling, yeah. you can, compen you can do, come to some agreement to compensate the party. And, and with the Fairness in Music Licensing yeah. US case, yes, they paid some money to the Irish, as far as I remember, the Irish PRS. Okay. And, yeah, it wasn't really a very satisfactory conclusion. Mm. So, yes, it's, it's not always great. So I, I don't foresee that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it works well for defences, this enforcement mechanism. No. Um, so, so when do you think this work is going to see the light of day, though, where you're saying you've been working yeah. on it? Is, it? is it something that might have, um, you know, it could be coming out soon? Because I'm thinking of yeah. the... Um, the IPO's impact assessment of the Hargreaves review and obviously quotation was kind of broadened then. So there's been a lot of interest in universities in kind of understanding what quotation yeah. now means, isn't it? Well, you there? see, you've mentioned the IPO's um, assessment mm. of, the, of the changes, which means that we have to have the Is jingle. It? Oh. it is the time for the jingle. Oh. Right, so it's time for our copyright news jingle. Copyright news, copyright news, copyright news, copyright news, copyright news, well, there we go. Copyright news. So the news yeah. in, just in, <laughs> is that the UK Intellectual Property Office has launched this five-year review of the changes that came about after the Hargreaves review of intellectual property. Um, so they're asking for various stakeholders to talk about, uh, give evidence as to what has changed and whether the benefits that they thought would come through the copyright system have actually come through. So... Um, as someone, as you know, we've been talking about your yeah. work on quotation and, and having been involved in in that Hargreaves review and, and kind of talking and thinking a lot about it, what what is your perspective of has anything changed in the UK over the last five years? Has has are we now in the sunlit uplands of the copyright world because yeah. of the changes, yes. or, or 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 is it terrible, or is it kind of a, a mixed picture? Well, firstly, they were reasonably modest changes. Yeah. I, I, I remember sitting, I think this was even before they were adopted, and, and the Alliance for Intellectual Property, if that's what they're called, can't quite remember their full name, yeah. they invited me to be on a panel with uh, three MPs, each of Labour, Liberal and Tory, I think, including the then IPs are, anyway, their names... Uh, I don't remember their names. Ian Wright was the um, was the t was the Labour MP, and um, they were saying um, how the Hargreaves review was. You know, they looked, one of them said, "I looked at the Harvey Hargreaves review again yesterday in preparation for this, and essentially the man wanted to destroy copyright." Well, if you look at w what the... Uh, you know, and I said, it's quite an extreme uh, view of it. Totally. And I, 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 you know, I said, you know, this. I'm sorry, I don't really want to con contradict somebody, but this is just wrong. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, these reforms were extremely modest, yes. and many of them were rationalisations. Mm. And uh, they were modest in part because 
um, we were we're limited by the EU law anyway, so mm. there was only a certain amount of flexibility that um, mm. that could be introduced into into the system. But then, even once we we have these reforms that are, are modest and actually mostly. Uh, I thought very very helpful in terms of clarifying mm. things. I thought things like the um, like the educational reforms look a lot more manageable now mm. than um, than they did before, where they were scattered around in mm. different sections or with different criteria and not quite making any sense. Um, and um, but then then one problem is implementing them, and five years actually is well. Five years is not long no, no. Uh, to work out how much effect they've had. Mm. Yeah. And you know Emily Hudson. Emily mm. Hudson's mm. PhD uh, investigated uh, copyright exceptions in universities and, and libraries. Mm-hmm. And she went, she looked at Australia and uh, Canada and the United States to look how far differences in legal decisions or whatever influence practices. Yes. And on the whole, I mean, one of the take-homes from her PhD, which I examined a long time ago, um, was that it's very difficult to bring about institutional change by changing the law. It's a slow process before yeah. uh, the institutions realise there's been a change, mm. before they, the way they communicate that to the people who are making the decisions slow, lower down the, mm. the chain. Um uh, uh, so, I I would say the, that it's going to be quite hard to show that there's been a big impact so far. Mm. Um, I was uh, so so one of the things the Hargreaves Review did was um, make some of the exceptions not overridable by contract, mm-hmm. and I had a book on interlibrary loan. Uh, a, a PhD on interlibrary loan, um, so something that's been made available to the public, um, and I was supposed to sign away any rights to refer to it, quote from it, etc. Uh, even though uh, these, as far as I can understand, and I haven't gone back and checked the statute, uh, mm. are now uh, overridden. Yeah. But still, the interlibrary loan system is making me sign something yeah. to mm. disincentivize me from from uh, referring to or quoting something. Yeah, because that's a kind of internal sort of form that's going to take quite some time to change. Yeah. And there's been quite a lot of nervousness as well about from library staff, particularly those who work in interlibrary loan, about what, what those changes actually meant. And, you know, I think it, it's, it's quite clear that in many institutions that practice at the moment hasn't massively shifted. Yeah. Know? seems that you know that that's certainly from the the experience of we've mm-hmm. had talking to people I should, tell, I, should, I, just, I should tell you about this phd because it was extraordinary so i'm interested in a, a 16th century it's about trademarks but it, i'm interested in an, uh, a 16th century trademark case about scythes and this phd was from the university of sheffield and it was about scythe makers in the region where this case from 1565 had occurred and um, it was two volumes, and the second volume was simply a list of scythe makers in the area between 1500 and 1800. <laughs> wow. <laughs> An entire volume. That's the entire second volume. 
Wow. Was that, a list of names. They did have a huge steel industry in Sheffield. And they did. Yeah. 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 And I, went, I did go to a museum once where I saw lots of sides. And oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's one. Um, it's in Sheffield. It's like a kind of industrial museum. and Yeah. Okay, I need to go then. Yeah, but it reminds, me, it reminds me of a book I bought my friend once as a present, which is just a list of death metal band names. And it's got no other... Context, no other words in it. It's just Fantastic. an alphabetical <laughs> list of all the names from beginning yeah. to end, and it's brilliant. Yeah. We're getting into nerdy facts that is, now. That yeah. is nerdy facts. I think I think this is the time to find out whether Lionel's got any favourite nerdy facts about copyright. You must have loads of them up your sleeve. So, or my, trademarks, or you know, <laughs> design no, rights. So, uh, my favourite fact is not mine. So I'm stealing somebody else's fact, <laughs> okay. and I'm stealing Ronan Deasley's. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. And Ronan Deasley did, well, he's a great copyright historian. Yes. And a lovely man. And he worked on um, primary sources on copyright, which Martin Kretschmer and I are nominally the... This is a, a website for mm-hmm. people who are interested in the history of copyright in Britain, France, United States, Italy, Spain. Jose Belido did the Spanish stuff. The Netherlands, Stefan Gompel did that. Anyway, in when doing that work, um, Ronan wrote an entry on Coppinger. And Coppinger is uh, one of the two big copyright treaties for practitioners. And it was first published in 1870. Yeah. And um, Ronan does... It's, it's a beautiful commentary. Like many of the things that Ronan has written, it's, it's really nicely crafted. And he exposes how Coppinger was... espoused the natural rights theory of authors and yeah. therefore... Uh, lengthy protection, uh, but it should give way at some point because if it was absolutely perpetual, there might be some problems. But, you know, after two or three generations, it, there's some reason to for copyright to come to an end. So two or three generations after the death of the author. Um, and then Ronan highlights the fact that uh, Coppinger has taken this passage from... Uh, an American author, George Tickner Curtis, and he goes through in the rest of the commentary and exposes all these other passages in Coppinger, the book on copyright, <laughs> which he's just copied just cut from page. an American book on copyright. <laughs> now, 19th century control C, control V. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, it, it, and it wouldn't be so bad if he said, I'm a positivist, yeah. and, you know, American works we don't protect unless they're first published in the United Kingdom because yeah. we haven't yet got an international copyright convention with the United States in yeah. 1870. Um, you know, that had to wait for the, the Chase Act in the, in the 1890s. But, but he's espousing this theory, of, you know... Of, Reproducing it as if it's his own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No footnotes, no well, One footnote where he um. cites one page from George Tickner Curtis and as Ronan then says, you know, that's not too bad, but the first two-thirds of this were on two <laughs> other pages. So that's, what, that's my best uh, copyright that's, that's, fact. That goes really to show it. that hypocrisy is timeless, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing we tend to ask people, another question, is yeah. about who you, people's copyright heroes are. And it yeah. seems to be turning into a little bit of the sort of Lionel Bentley section, because almost everyone we ask mentions you. However, <laughs> what we wanted to do, rather than embarrass you any further, is just wondered if you wanted to mention people that you've worked with, that have kind of shaped your experience, that you, you're going, you kind of, you know, not necessarily yeah. a hero to you, but certainly yeah. people that you, you want to kind of mention. Well, there are, I mean, there are a load of people who do phenomenally good work. 
and um, you know those are the people who who sustain you because you find yourself reading and learning new and exciting things about copyright and and you know so for me the, the people who do the copyright history work so I've mentioned some of them already people like well, Jane Ginsburg, that would be an unpopular choice with, with some people, but mm -hmm. she's a, an absolutely fantastic scholar, mm. and she does great work. Mark Rose, I've mentioned, is still writing a little bit on copyright. Ronan, fantastic. Mm. Uh, Jose uh, Belido mm. writes some of the most brilliant stuff. You know, he, he picks a particular thing and he explores it. I, ca I call it uh, legal pantalism or hyper-realism. He, mm. he, he, he takes something and he exposes every single component of it. Yeah. Uh, in which, and by doing that, emphasises its contingency. Yeah. But then there's uh, Isabella Alexander in Australia. There's an amazing American copyright historian called Thomas Gomez Aristegui. Sorry, Thomas, if you ever listen to this. <laughs> uh, and Thomas is doing 17th century copyright stuff. Mm -hmm. And he comes across to the National Archive and takes amazing photographs of these old cases. And he's got, uh, and he will one day publish an argument that there was something or a common belief in a common law copyright at a stage even before the Statute of Anne. Mm. He may not be very popular for that, but he's a good historian. So, yeah. you know, yeah. if that's what he finds, that, that's what he, what he finds. Yeah. Um, and then, I, you know, Eleanor Cooper, who was a PhD student of mine, has just published a really nice book based on her PhD, but taken much beyond on the history of art copyright. So there's lots, you know, lots of people whose work out there I really love. And Will Slaughter as well. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Yes. So, you yeah. know, I, I'm sure there's lots of other people I should have, should have mentioned. Uh, yeah. Well, yes, and um, we've got people, certainly some of the people you mentioned that we haven't spoken to are certainly on our list as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, we were hoping to get to Eleanor's book launch, weren't we? Um, oh, yeah, but it yeah. was out in... Um, it was in, yeah, Royal Holloway, wasn't it? Royal so, Holloway, yeah. and I didn't realise how... Neither did difficult I. That Neither was going did I. To... No. So I think if people from Royal Holloway are listening, they should move their, um, their entire Events. site closer oh, to London. Yeah. I mean, the entire yeah. institution yes. much closer to actual London. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, it might help. It's supposed to be beautiful, their Victorian picture gallery. Yeah, and so I didn't I saw, get there. So the did you get to it? No, no, I didn't get to no, it. No, I looked I, at I the train teaching, and I was teaching until something like, I don't know, I can't remember, four o'clock. Yeah. And it was... It would have been possible to get to London if it had been, you know, somewhere near King's Cross. Yes, but, yeah, but, yeah. But, no, I had yeah. a similar situation that I had to be at work until about 5, 5.30, and yeah. it was starting at 6, and I thought, oh, it's not very far, is it? And then I, I looked it up and realised... Yeah. But however much our listeners might be interested in, 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 in travel tra arrangements <laughs> and, and, yeah. our, and our booked-up yeah. calendars, um, <laughs> I, what... One thing we, we do want to ask is... Um, yes, we tend to ask people, so um, where, where do you go to find out about copyright or kind of keep yourself up to date? So have you got like a kind of, I don't know, you, 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 I mean, you're quite yeah. active on Twitter, aren't you? Uh, yeah, actually Twitter, uh, Twitter is a very good source mm. if, you, if you plug into the right people. Yes. And, depend, yeah. and yeah. depending on the sorts of things you want, want to find out about... So in following things like uh, the progress of the EU copyright mm. legislation, 
following people like Yulia Rader mm, mm. is is a really good way to keep abreast of that. Um, with cases, I don't know when this happened, but at some point I got on some of the judicial lists. So when there are new cases, I tend to get sent copies of them. I don't by know, I by don't email? Know. Or yeah, by yeah, email. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, not just me, it's like uh, quite a big list yeah. of, you know, often barristers and solicitors firms and so forth. Oh, okay. Um, that sounds very helpful. Yeah, no, it is. It yeah. is very helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's patents, trade, it's whatever they're doing. Yeah. So, um, but that for me, my teaching, that's that's really useful. Yeah. Um, then I use, you know, I use the blogs that everybody uses. Yeah. Like IPCAT and the uh, Kluver Copyright blog. But yes. I, but I don't really, uh, you know, I didn't know about the Hargreaves thing. I don't read them every day. No, no. Um, no. But also. I don't really, I don't really like to keep up. <laughs> I like to have periods where I'm not thinking about the latest thing, and yeah. where, where I'm thinking about the old, the thing that was well, the latest say, thing back in. If you're going back, in, back yeah, also yeah. looking at copyright history, then yeah. it's kind of, it's it's more yeah. digging into the archives, isn't it? And yeah. yeah. So what yeah. I what I tend to do is, you know, I'll do some work, and then I'll have to do the textbook or. Or teach, yeah, and yeah. then I catch up at that point. Yes. So I'm not. So it's often disappointing for people because they sometimes think, oh, they'll ask me about the latest case, and I kind of go, well, <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Point them to the IP cat, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But when you catch you up, you'll be all over it. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. So. I think now's time, isn't it? I think so, I think yes. So. so what we, um, as well as liking copyright, Chris and I both quite like something else that begins with C, which okay. is cake. Ah, yes. So we um, quite often home-bake cakes. Oh, really? They yes. And um, cool. these were made by me. These are um, some banana and blueberry muffins. I bet your listeners love this bit. Yes. Where they listen to us eating the cake. Well, we got, we got some comments back on the first one where we ate the cake uh, uh, while, we, while it was being recorded, and then they're still like, "Yeah, that's not very nice." So, no. we, so we, we, we don't we don't eat on microphone. Anymore. Some people like it. Apparently. Some people, yeah, yeah, but, but quite a lot of our listeners didn't like no, it. No, so fine. we'll just open the cakes. We'll put them in front of you, and then we'll you can eat one when the recording starts. So there we go. Okay. Cool. So they, what are they? Uh, banana and blueberry muffins. That's very good. So. So what, so what are your favourite cakes or, or, or desserts or sort of ah, treats? Well, um, I, I, as a kid, my mother was... Obs- so I, I, I liked... I think it was mainly to appall my mother, actually. Yeah. Um, I liked Battenberg. And oh, I liked right. the really artificial Battenberg. Luminous, the Battenberg, luminous, the yellow, yellow and pink <laughs> squares <laughs> with yellow marzipan around it. And and I, I think I'd never, re- you know, I, I, maybe I liked it for a few moments, but then my mother got the view that I liked it. So every time I went home, she would have got a Battenberg for me from. Mr. And you couldn't Mr. at that Kipling. point confess no, that you no. weren't really that keen yeah. on it. No, no. So that yeah. was at least known to be my favourite cake. Yes, it is yeah. the most heraldic of all cakes. Isn't <laughs> it? I think it's the one where you kind of there's a sort of pageantry involved in, yes. in just the way it looks. Yeah, I've never tried to make one. It no. looks quite complicated. I think really. you just basically get two sponges and you cut them into long thin strips and. Stick them together. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. for next time. Yeah, OK. I think home-made well, home one. ones can be quite nice. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, these the, the ones that I'm referring to definitely weren't home-made. No, okay. no, yeah. no. Um, I, like, I like Swiss roll, homemade Swiss oh, roll. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Um, 
Yeah, I don't. I don't really have a very sweet tooth, so. I just remember my brother made a Swiss roll when he was at school and he used ten times as much sugar as there was in the recipe. So uh, the thing's supposed to curb, uh, yeah. it's supposed to curve and bend over and it was just like snapped and, yeah. and then I ate the whole thing. You didn't. I did. Oh. That was what, what, what have the other answers been on cakes? I feel like I'm Oh we've had oh. we've had uh, one that we haven't yet published but we will shortly has got a devil's food cake. Yes. Devil's With, food what's that? It's it's a very it's a, complicated, dark, rich uh, chocolatey, chocolatey. It's quite involved to make. It yeah. involves all these kind of. It's. We had a whole. I think thing it's got. It's like a fondant icing. With but it's got, yeah. Bartolomeo about tiramisu and whether it was. Oh, a cake Italian or a cakes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and, uh, yeah. That, what yeah, what was a cake and what was a a, a torta? Yes. Yes. Oh. Was that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And whether that counted, whether we were allowed to let him have tiramisu in. Um, we might end up making uh, like a compilation episode that's just the cake just stuff. Cake. Mm. We could do that, couldn't mm. we? Yeah. Mm. I'm trying to remember whether did did Eleonora have a cake that was her favourite? I'm not sure. I can't remember. No, no. it's all lost in the midst of time. It was. Now. It's yeah. all so long ago. Yeah, you'll have to listen to some of the back issues. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, go, go, go! Just go to the end and listen yeah. to the cake section. Yeah. Yeah. Until what did, what did Jose? No. <laughs> what did he say? Um, do you know? So I, I, we we made him muffins. I don't think Jose would eat a cake. No, he did eat. He did, he did eat the banana he did muffin. Egg, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think he likes chocolate. I think that's what oh, he does. He? To. Yeah. Mm. So I go to the football with Jose, yeah. and he always brings Spanish snacks, nuts, mm. and uh, and bits of deep fried sweet corn and that sort of. Oh thing. Yeah, 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 those are nice. Those are. Yeah. Mm. I've got a Spanish friend. When you eat the, the nuts in the bar, they 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 throw the the husks on the floor. It's the kind of thing that certainly in this part of Spain, in Galicia. And so you oh, just, yeah, you yeah. have that, everyone just throws them on the floor, yeah, and at the end yeah. of the night is just. A carpet of, of nut nutshells. Nut yeah, they just yeah. get swept up and everyone's right. just okay with it. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. Well. So, well, maybe we could try and see if the uh, the good publicans of uh, Cambridge would be interested in us doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Throwing some nuts around. Throwing yes. some nuts around. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very, very much, Lionel. You're very welcome. For, That's you know, joining us on the waffle. It's, it's been, been, thank you. It's yeah. been brilliant. Cake now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Shut up, Okay. <laughs> <laughs>